everyone, and welcome to another episode of PolicyWise. I'm really excited because today we'll be hearing from Manuel and Lewis, who are part of the Fresno Teachers Association and are bringing quite big perspectives and power positions from the FTA here today. And so uh, we'll dive in a little bit about the FTA specifically, and then also sort of the role of teachers, which relates to many of our episodes about education and many of the things that I will get to discuss with others this season. But before getting started, I think it would be awesome to first have everyone introduce themselves. So uh, Manuel, would you mind introducing yourself and your role with the FTA? Yes, hi, thank you for having us on. My name is Manuel Bonilla. I am a teacher, high school teacher at McLean High School in Fresno, California. And I'm also very honored and privileged to serve as the Fresno Teachers Association president. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for hosting us. My name is Lewis Jamerson. I am the executive director of the Fresno uh, Teachers Association. I am not a classroom teacher, bit of a troublemaker, <laughs> a sort of an organizational specialist. So uh, it's my honor as well to serve in my role, representing our teachers and, and, and our nurses, our speech language pathologists, our trades professionals, and many other folks uh, in Fresno Unified School District. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Before diving a little bit deeper, maybe into both of your roles and the different things that motivated you to take on these roles, I was wondering if you could provide a little bit more background on the FTA to maybe someone who has, you know, never really looked into a teacher's union before and maybe has just like had contact through being a student themselves. Yeah, so the Fresno Teachers Association represents 4,200 educators, nurses, and actually trades professionals. And we just added on recently social workers in Fresno Unified. It is the third largest school district in California. Again, very uh, great group of folks. And so with that, part of our role is to advocate for what we see uh, from our members, what what they see needs to improve within education. Typically, the uh, labor unions have really defaulted to just salary and benefits. We see our role expanding is not just those items I talk often about. There's three areas in which we do this industrial side, salary, benefits, working conditions, the professional side, right? Really honing in and being the standard bearers of our craft in education, right? And then the social side in regards to just ensuring that the social components are there so that way our students come ready to learn. So that's what we do as an organization. I would just add that we have a document that is called our collective bargaining agreement, about 140 pages long. And similar to like, if you think about the NBA, NFL, sports, that we have a contract that sort of defines the working conditions for our educators and others in the system, uh, salary, benefits. But to President Bonilla's point, we go beyond that work. We also feel like it's our responsibility to try to transform public education so that it benefits our 74,000 students and our community at large. I like the NFL analogy. It makes me feel like when a teacher gets added to a new school, you guys are going to do like a big, you know, where they put the celebration on, they put the hat on and everyone celebrates. So for some more differentiation and like understanding, how are the things that you just discussed different than other sort of forms of teachers associations? Is there collective bargaining agreements across all teachers associations or uh, yeah, sort of like what are the differences there? Yeah, so really it's all about leadership in any organization, that whether it be LA, San Diego, or, or Fresno, the three largest, right, or, or any other 
one around the valley. Really, it's just about that leadership organization at the local level. But as far as a technical component, as Lewis mentioned, we, we all have a, a collective bargaining agreement. We've really, particularly after 2014, under our past leader, Rice, our past president, Tish Rice, that's when Lewis also came into our organization. So these two great leaders coming in and really giving a different lens as to what's possible for this association in particular. And so, as we mentioned, just really taking on uh, a different role, saying that, you know, it's part of our responsibility that we utilize this mechanism so that way we could improve public education in Fresno because it, it's it's needed. So we're going to do our part to make sure that we're doing that because Education impacts not only the 74,000 students that we serve in, in this, but also now about 11,000 employees throughout the district. And then the extension of that is our entire community. And, and with the Valley, Fresno being the, the largest city in, in the Valley, it has a, a vast impact. And so we take that very seriously. So that's kind of been the charge for the last 10 years or so. Great. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Louis, did you want to add anything to that? The only thing that I would add is that when, you know, while our contract, our CBA is, is important, beyond that scope of work, what we do for our students and what we advocate for on behalf of our students is also super important. We have, in my tenure here, really tried to focus on what can we do to improve the learning environment for our students, as well as obviously what can we do to improve the learning environment slash teaching environment for our educators. And so we believe that those two issues are not mutually exclusive, that they matter, uh, and that we should be addressing those. Even if the language is not in our collective bargaining agreement, what you'll see, if you look at our website, if you look at some of the work that we've done over the la about the last decade, we are out in the community talking to parents and talking to others about what can we do. And we're asking those folks, quite frankly, to hold us accountable to our commitments to our students, because we think that that should be the role of public education and the role of a teacher's union here in every part of the country. Got it. Yeah, thank you. I definitely want to dive into some of the current initiatives that are happening, as well as like maybe some of the past ones that have been successful and, and what you think can lead towards that. I also just like thinking back to Emmanuel's comment about you arriving, I think it was in after 2014. I was wondering if you could both give a brief sort of summary of, you know, your past experiences, how you have been inspired to become involved in one education, but specifically kind of culminating to this work here on the FTA? A great question. First off, I am a product of Fresno Unified School District. I graduated from Roosevelt High School a long time ago, <laughs> class of 88. <laughs> I left Fresno shortly after I graduated and quite frankly didn't think that I would call Fresno home again. Went off to college, started a family, all that. I actually, years and years ago, remember having a conversation about public education and whether or not public education was sort of doing enough to meet the needs of students, especially students of color, and then questioning, wow, over 30 years ago, how could education look differently? How could education really sort of create education where we have kids that really love learning and we have teachers who are proud to come to work and excited to come to work. And like, how do you create that energy and sustain that energy in our schools? And then I had the opportunity at the beginning of 2014 to apply for a position here. I was sort of, you know, well, sort of actually really happy with the work I was doing in Los Angeles with another labor organization. But my heart was always, you know, interested in doing work in public education. 
part of it for me was an opportunity to come home, but also part of it was about sort of recognizing that there's some things that really need to be addressed. So for example, in our district every day, 4,000 students are homeless. And I believe that it is our responsibility to begin to address that issue. About 65% of our students are getting to third grade and they're a year or more behind in reading. So how do we address that issue? How do we start putting things in place before third grade so that our students are given the tools and the resources so that they can be at third grade or even better by the time they get to third grade? Over 90% of our African-American students are failing math in our system. And I could go on and on about the issues that are really challenging our students and our teachers cannot address all of those issues in a classroom. What are we doing before students get to class and what are we doing after students leave our classrooms to support them, to encourage them? And we talk a lot in our organization about strength-based education because all of our students in our classrooms with tools, with talents, and how do we tap into those tools and talents to help that student flourish in a learning environment? Well, some of that really is about, again, what are we doing before they get to our classrooms, but it also means giving our teachers the ability, the autonomy, the authority within their classroom to work with kids in a different way. And we can talk more about that. But that was sort of my inspiration for getting here. And then once I got here, really understanding that the teachers in this system really love what they do. They love our students. And they're just asking for an opportunity to be their best selves so that they can deliver the best education for our students. And sometimes, quite frankly, the systems that are in place impede that. And so we're trying to help change some of those things so that our kids are, again, getting what they need. These conversations are really sort of quite interesting for me because I'm not an educator, but I know how to listen. And so part of it is just making sure that our teachers have space and voice in the process. And so that, you know, we can sort of hear what they have to say learn from their expertise and their experience, and then try to then, you know, move that voice and their plans and their and their professionalism forward. It's really awesome to sort of hear like a student-centered approach. I think like, it feels like as a student, sometimes the dialogue you hear outside of school is teachers versus students. Like it's always like sort of like this battle. And I think growing up, you know, like both my parents um, being teachers, like, you know, you don't, you, I, it's like hard to battle with and like grapple with. And it's not something that like, it's been something I've been fortunate enough to see like sort of both sides and how much care is involved. And there's really the incentives to be a teacher are, they have to be so intrinsic because <laughs> right now there's just like so much against teachers. It's incredible to hear. And also I'm really excited. Manuel, do you want to add any, anything to that? Uh, yeah, my story, I, is, uh, education is a second career for me. My wife is, was an educator long before I was, has been so for about 17 years now. I became an educator having switched careers in 2010 was a classroom teacher credentialed both in social science taught U.S. history and due to my past career also taught video production and broadcasting. And the thing that inspired me to kind of go into this work really by accident in some ways is that I'll give a quick shout out to my, my university, Fresno Pacific, small university in, in Fresno. The thing that they, they talk about is that teaching is a calling to redemptive service and and I truly believe that educators really feel like their work is a calling in whatever aspect that they feel that in. And so when I got to my school site, which the Brookings Institute says that is the highest concentration of poverty in America, not, not just mm -hmm. California, but in America. And I was trying to put into practice the things that I had learned about 
creating relevant and meaningful curriculum for my students, I was met with a bunch of resistance, both from my site administration and from my district administration. And that really frustrated me because it created a conflict in the sense that I wasn't going to go with canned curriculum. I know that my students were going to be engaged if we were able to have conversations and they were able to learn about things that really impacted their life. And we pushed back, my, myself and colleagues, as we, we did some interdisciplinary work uh, around literacy and art, video production, those types of things. And so with that, we did some amazing projects, interdisciplinary projects, the projects that uh, were in the White House. So again, these students created art, poetry, were invited to the White House by President Obama, but they're around real issues, real issues like immigration issues, incarceration issues, race relations and civil rights. Like these are things that kids wanted to talk about and we needed to create a safe space in our schools to be able to talk and have real conversations. And yet we were getting, again, a lot of pushback and really bucked the system. And so that's when I started to realize, well, wait a minute, why is the system against doing these types of things? These are the things that we should be doing if we want our students to be engaged in education. Something clicked that said, you know, we just have to keep on uh, advocating and fighting. So I started that at the local, at my site level, was invited by our past president to become part of the bargaining team at that time, 2016, for our contract. And then I started to see that, you know, the broader system, the district-wide system failing in, in many areas. And so I really fell in love with just advocating for my colleagues across the system. I feel like I have an ability to just listen and to try to find what the issue is and then to work together to find a solution. And so that's what we're trying to do uh, across the system. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Just like a quick follow-up on what you mentioned in terms of pushback, what sorts of pushback would you, were you facing? Like, is it all sort of internal like bureaucracy or, or what, what does that look like? Oh boy, we could do a whole podcast on pushback, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, I'll give you a, a couple of quick examples. So we, we built an interdisciplinary project program of it was called Art Venture. We had, again, studied controversial topics, seemingly controversial topics. I, I would call it relevant and engaging topics. But these are the first. Imagine we had students interviewing their, their family members about the immigration stories of their family members and, and turning those interviews into writing, that writing being given over to art students to create this amazing art that were mm. in local museums. We did that for our Latin American students, for our Southeast Asian students, right? Just really building community. But then 2014, my Michael Brown is shot and killed in Ferguson, and we did not shy away from that. We said, let's utilize this and let's talk about this to talk about where we are as a country and, and where we're civil rights fighting for Mississippi Freedom Summer, those types of things. And as we started to get into more needed conversations, we got a lot of more pushback. Uh, and this is after we've been invited out to, to the White House, right? And so the next one was the incarceration project. It centered around a memoir by uh, Jimmy Santiago Baca, who is a Chicano poet. He learned to read and write in jail, become a published poet in jail. And he wrote a memoir called A Place to Stand. And it was about his journey having traumatic childhood, being incarcerated, and then learning how to read and write and really expressing himself through reading and writing. 
the site and district administration said that it would be too traumatic. We would re-traumatize our students because they would read about people that were had been incarcerated dealing with alcoholism and whatnot. And, and we really pushed back on that and said, you know what, our community is impacted, whether directly or indirectly, by incarceration. Our schools need to be a place where we learn to turn that experience, that negative experience, into a positive one, whether that's expressing it through writing or art or anything else. And so they asked us mm-hmm. to tell students not to read certain pages, which I wrote down in my schedule. I said, don't read this page on this day. I would imagine, I, I don't know if they followed the rules on those particular items, yeah. but I, I will like say, don't. Right. Don't think of an elephant. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, But I will tell you that uh, a group of of kids that came in, they read on the very first day, the proof is in the pudding. I wish I would have had video of this. They came in and they were wanting to talk. And the the things that they shared just from having read that first chapter, stories of their own uh, struggles, both themselves and their family about alcoholism and and whatnot. It was just a, a beautiful moment to see how they could process this, that they could connect to someone else's story and then change that into their own expression, whether via art, writing, or video production. And, uh, and that's what's missing in our schools today is being able to, you know, have authentic conversations and meaningful and relevant conversations. And so part of this work for me is to create a system that allows teachers to engage in a way that just creates more meaningful experiences, because right now it seems like there's too many can curriculum that just doesn't connect with our students. Mm. Really inspiring and really interesting. And it is one of those things where that sort of pushback, like maybe it's well-intentioned, like they, they were looking at something in the beginning, but now it's just like antiquated and doesn't really reach down and, and kind of speaks to why it's so important that teachers have the ability to go the extra mile when they really want to in so many cases. I have a lot of questions. I, I think just to start, one thing that I've been curious about, what we've been talking about a lot is a lot of focus on like sort of the pedagogy, like a lot of the teacher practices, what's happening in the classroom and, you know, talking about teachers that have gone the extra mile with sort of like the curriculum and, and those sorts of things. Obviously, when a student comes after class and is sharing like this is how the story affected me and and this so on and so forth, you know, that's not part of that's not really built into the schedule. I was wondering, like sort of in what ways that you feel like teachers are sort of going above and beyond like a typical job description and what sort of things that the FTA does to support those efforts. My personal observation is that teachers are responsible for so much sometimes, like almost like too much to be in charge of a classroom of 30 students and provide like the care, the support, the education required to to kids who often who just like any kid just needs so much support. I was wondering like sort of what what the take on, on your take on that was and how you feel like teachers can be better supported at least in our system, I feel as if teachers are surviving instead of thriving. They're doing amazing work in their classrooms in spite of the district's lack of support instead of because of the support. I think that uh, in some ways, whether it be districts or or even the community at large, have really redefined what the role is. feels uh, like unless a teacher is quote-unquote going above and beyond, they're not quote-unquote a good teacher. And we're trying to change that dynamic in the sense that, you know, all our teachers are doing great work. But there's this thing that I talk about is that this exploitation of empathy. So oftentimes that idea Mm. of do it for the kids is leveraged against teachers. And that's unfortunate because we see the ways in which they spend their own money to do classroom supplies or to do classroom resources or other things. The amount of time 
that they spend either after their contractual hours uh, in the evening times or on the weekends that oftentimes sacrifice from their own families, right? And so in our work, we're trying to create a system where they don't have to do those things, where that is supported, right? Because the teacher shouldn't have to be the psychologist, the social worker. And that's not to say that they're not building healthy and proactively building healthy relationships. Of course, that's part of good teaching. But at a certain point, they need additional support. And we're seeing right now that the system is just not providing that additional support. And when teachers are asking for it, essentially, kids are being put back into the classroom without that support. And the the policy, the unwritten policy of at least our system seems to be just deal with it. And there's a breaking point for folks, right? Mm -hmm. And it can't be where we hear often, well, you know what you're getting into when you become a teacher. That's not good enough. Uh, That's not good enough for for us. We wouldn't want that for uh, uh, other professions. We definitely don't want it for ours, particularly because of the work that our our, our teachers are doing with our students. And I guess I would just add, Demi, that we try to approach the work from a design sort of thinking. I'll give you an example. We were at a school site last week. Some of our site leaders and some of our district leaders believe that there's this thing called supervision, right? And and we get it. That makes sense. But our our interpretation of our contract says that a, a secondary teacher is not required to do supervision. And we also recognize that in some cases, supervision is necessary. Okay. So we at a particular school site last week, we go and our teachers at the site are saying that their secondary site administration is hearing from downtown, that that site can make it mandatory for our teachers to do supervision. So basically, when students are outside of the classroom, either like coming to school in the morning or leaving in the afternoon. Would you mind defining supervision really fast? uh, Getting on and off buses that there's someone out there that needs to sort of pay attention to the, what's happening. I right? see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we said, we get it. We're, we understand that, you know, we want to mitigate any potential fights in the morning or after school. We want to make sure that the kids are getting off buses and into classrooms safely and out of classrooms and onto buses safely. We get it. However, what tends to happen is that a teacher that's usually where they are either potentially they have what their prep time. So they're supposed to be, and that is supposed to be teacher controlled time. Um, so if you're asking a teacher to like give a, essentially give up their prep time to do supervision, then you're taking away time for them to get prepared to do their jobs with their other students or with those same students the next day. So we said, okay, we understand. Can we sit down and figure out another option to meet the needs of our students, and also not put it on the shoulders and the responsibility or the plate of our educators to do that work. And so that's how we approach the sort of like these systems. We're we're happy to to sort of sit down with a site leader or district leadership and say, let's co-design something that works because we know at many secondary sites, teachers are not being asked to do supervision. They've created Mm -hmm. a system at those sites where teachers don't have to do that because there are other adults in the system that can do that work. And so sometimes it's just a matter of, well, we know something's working over at school site A, Mm. why don't we bring it to school site B? And we don't have that sort of design, if you will, in our district. And and that's when you'll hear Emmanuel sort of talking about this stuff gets a little frustrating because we say, we know things are working in certain places. We don't have to recreate the wheel, but can we Mm. figure out a way to do that same sort of work here 
And then if it's not working across the system, like third grade literacy, then let's get together and design that together and learn together and assess the work as we go to make sure if what we're doing is not working, then we're pivoting together to make it work. Yeah, I I definitely want to dig into sort of like the problem solving around that just to looping back really fast in terms of I just imagine this being so much work on teachers like do you see this impacting like the ability to to hire teachers and retain teachers just like speaking from, you know, personal contact with teachers. I think I know more teachers who have stopped being teachers this year than I have ever actually been taught by like the total number of teachers I've been taught by my whole life. Like, are you seeing it becoming increasingly more difficult? And do you think that's the salary component or do you think it's a, a combination of other factors? Too often, particularly in education, we fall into a trap of it, you know, wanting a silver bullet or just it's one item. It's it's all of these things. Yes. Is it, is it mm. a salary component? Absolutely. Is it is it a time component? Absolutely. Is it a an autonomy component? Absolutely. Is it a lack of support? Absolutely. So it's all of those items. They compound as, as they kind of come together. And uh, yes, to answer your question, we have seen a, a number of burnt out, frustrated, and there's nothing more demoralizing than having teachers who feel like they can't do their calling anymore because of just how passionate they are about that work, but feeling like they're just mm. not supported anymore. That's completely yeah. demoralizing. And that's part of the reason why we want to help change the system is because we want to make sure that folks are not only here, but they're here for the long haul and that they come feeling as much you know, support so that way they can meet the needs of our student. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The higher, at least what I've seen, the higher that you go up on the chain of, in terms of administration, the more you're searching for generalizable solutions to things. And I'd be really interested to see how, you know, I think on like a school level, there is a particular issue, like you were saying, Lewis, the supervision issue is happening, how can you generalize across the district? At what point or like at what scale or in what ways do you interact with from school level to district level to cross district to like all the way up to like a state level or even federal level? Do you see that there's specific issues that need to be brought that high? Or do you think that like most of the time it's contained within? I sort of like, what is what is the process there? So, Demi, I'll start and uh, let Manuel jump in. We have our parent organizations, both at the state level, the California Teachers Association, and then at the national level, the National Education Association, NEA, who sort of help us both on the state and on the national level deal with uh, issues, policies, politics at, at that level. That allows us to try to stay focused on the um, sort of local issues. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right that the the uh, as you get further away from the classroom, then sometimes it seems as if those folks lose sight of what's happening in the classroom, right? And when we start talking about, because we tend to approach these any issue from we want to really understand it, but we also want to provide a set of solutions because we never mm -hmm. want to be seen as just someone bringing problems, problems, problems without what can we bring to say, hey, maybe this is one way 
or several ways to try to address a particular issue. And we do that, quite honestly, by talking to our educators and by talking to, you know, we, we even go to our school sites and invite parents into the conversation and say, hey, here's something. What do you all think? Or do you have another idea that maybe we're missing, right? So for us, it's trying to make sure that we're, and that we're reminding leaders all the way up to the superintendent and then even our school board leaders that here are the issues that we're hearing about. Here's a set of solutions that we hear from parents, educators, and even sometimes students. And it doesn't have to be our solution, but here's at least some one or two or multiple ways to deal with this. If you don't want this solution, fine, but please Mm -hmm. provide one that will address the problem in a meaningful way. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And like, probably such a productive approach to sort of have that dialogue. It's also, it's just incredible. Like there's just so many actors involved. Like you have, you know, you have teachers, you have school administration, you have the student, like the central point of like this whole thing. It just feels like so much of that is like sort of boiled down to like what happens, you know, inside the classroom. In my mind, it's the most important job like in the entire world. For those hours in the classroom, which is like, you know, at least six hours a day, if not more, you're with kids during the most like critical key points of their development. And you're responsible for just ensuring one that they're gaining knowledge about whatever curriculum you're supposed to be teaching, but also just life skills and social skills and, you know, having everything that they need in those moments. And it's like shocking to me that there's just not like way more resources being poured into this vehicle to raise the next generation and future generations of people who are supposed to ensure that the next group and then like future and going forward is, is in a better place. But I am curious about sort of the general initiatives or what happens when you strategically plan for how the FTA is going to approach issues. Like what does that look like internally? And maybe like what are some of the current things that are happening right now? Let's rip the Band-Aid off. What, what is the issue? <laughs> the, the issue is that it's just a lack of leadership and vision. Everybody has a mission statement, a vision statement, but if you don't put that into reality, it's meaningless. And so are there organizations like our, our parent organization in regards to state level policy? Absolutely. But it feels at the local level that too many times that's utilized as an excuse uh, as opposed to uh, parameters, right? That's the unfortunate part. Uh, again, it's a lack of leadership vision and how we might do this, even with the state, pol- whatever state policies we have. We still need to make sure that the needs of our students are being met both academically and social emotionally, which then dovetails to your your second question about like, what are the processes that we put into place to kind of give voice and develop these things? So what we did is that we started with a question, as Lewis mentioned, we were really big on design thinking and design thinking is really about asking questions as opposed to giving statements, right? And so we asked the question of like, how might we reimagine education in Fresno? Right. How might we build our our schools on love and with this idea that when students leave our campuses, that they have developed a love for themselves, they understand who they are in this world, their identity. Uh, how do they develop a love for their community? All right. And so not only are they an individual, but there's somebody in a community and there's some responsibility that goes along with that. And then finally, a love for learning. Right. Because if you love learning, you're unstoppable. You're going to figure out where you your niche is in life and, and you'll go for that. So we asked those very overarching questions and we pretty lengthy survey to our membership and said, with those overarching questions, here are some more specific questions of how we might change our school system, knowing that that's the outcome that we want. We gathered all thousands, almost 3,000 folks that responded. 
And uh, we put together the largest bargaining team in this association's history, approximately 150 people in order to represent not only all the school sites, which we have 106 school sites, but then also various categories of education, right? So early learning, secondary, elementary, and all the other things. And we went through. We went through every single one of those responses, some of them free response, others that were more numerical. And we identified, here are the overarching concerns. And because we're a solutions-based organization, we said, Here's the, here are the solutions for those particular concerns. When we talk about vision, we said that we need to reimagine education, but in order to have an authentic conversation about that, that conversation needs to include the people that are actually doing the work, whether that be the classroom teacher, the school nurse, or whoever. Without that, all it is is just another top-down mandate. We want to be co-designers, as you, you've heard. So with that, we came up with a number of items, both on the academic side and the social emotional side, kind of to our point about vision and leadership. In California, the way the funding happens for a school district is that a school district actually gets more money specifically for the number of homeless students that it gets. And then there's a couple other categories as well. For us, we're calling the question in the sense that doing nothing is not an option. And so we said, let's put X amount of dollars in this particular case, $20 million. Let's put that aside. Let's earmark that for something and how we might address student homelessness. Came up with a couple of designs, but we said the conversation needs to be had. Doing nothing is not an option. And there's a number of items along those same lines, right? Both on the academic and social emotional side, or, but not just bodies, but creating a system to make sure that it's integrated and everybody knows what is happening so that way it doesn't you know, fall through the cracks. And so that's been the process. It's been met with some resistance because what will often happen is when you don't have visionary folks or they're just not as creative or they let bureaucracy kind of uh, get in the way, they say, well, we can't do this one aspect of that thing. So they don't want to have the conversation. And then again, that's not, that's not good enough for us. We need to have the conversation and figure out how we might design something that actually meets the needs of our students. And Demi, if I could, I'm just, Manuel's right. I'm sort of always proud of this, this work, especially over the last year, putting together a list of, of items. Manuel talked about addressing, you know, issues around our, you know, our unhoused students. We're also trying to do work to provide free wellness programs for our students and families. We're, we, we're advocating for our district to open school sites on weekends uh, during non-sporting events so that we have more green space for our communities. We're asking the district to partner with us to work with a company that, that I've actually met with to have a 24-hour mental health access by way of an app on, on a cell phone for our students because mental health is a big deal. We want to have appropriate changing tables at our school sites for some of our younger students. We, we're advocating for more bilingual support for students and educators. And then on the academic side, you heard, you heard me earlier talk about our kids getting to third grade. As we've talked to our educators, one of the things that's come up is that we need reading specialists to help mm -hmm. uh, because it's one thing to read to a kid. It's another thing to have a, the skill set to teach a kid how to read. And so we're advocating right. for reading specialists at every elementary school site and smaller class sizes. And I could go on and on about the things that yeah. we can directly support our students. And like, yeah, each individual student, each individual, individual teacher has you know, other needs, other priorities and things that are happening outside of the space. It's awesome to, to at least know that there's people who are trying and, and, and I'm really encouraged by this. And I think like, you know, if you get to the point where students are able to read at this 
third grade level to the proficiency that they're expected to, that's just going to have a turnover effect in the long run where they're able to, you know, contribute that to the next generation and so on and so forth. And great to learn about. I'm both inspired and frustrated. <laughs> and like, I'm just like, I want to see there be more support. And I get to this like level where I just think like if the professional teachers were treated and, and the, if the benefits that were received were in some way even slightly equivalent to those that are received, if you're, I don't know, like like if, if you think about like what an enlisted service member receives, you think about like the college for their students, you think about like all these different benefits that the state provides or the, or the federal government provides, like something like to that level of being like, this is such an important job. How can we be really showing what a priority this is? I think it'd be really awesome. You know, as we sort of reach closing time, I would love to hear any sort of like last comments or last thoughts both of you have. And then as sort of a tradition on policy wise, we always have people say, you know, something that they would like to say to either like policymakers or to young people who are listening. So if you wouldn't mind tying that in <laughs> to your closing statements, that would be amazing. What I would say to, to young folks is that hope is important and working in this industry I think, Demi, you said earlier, maybe the most important job on the planet, educating our students who are going to obviously be our leaders and they're going to be our future, everything. So the role the teachers play <laughs> is incredibly significant, incredibly important. And I hope that young folks will get into this, this industry, even with the frustration and with the, uh, the challenge around this feeling of hope. We certainly hear it from our educators. We certainly have, as you pointed out earlier, teachers leaving the industry at a higher percentage now coming out of COVID than ever before. We want to encourage people to get into this industry because if you can help us and others, really, as, as Manuel talked about earlier, we try to have schools built on love and a love of learning. We think that there's an opportunity to do that, and we're committed to that. We also get frustrated, and you know, our hope and, and our faith is challenged from time to time. But we recognize that like it's something as simple as advocating for free mandatory tutoring when students are have C's, D's, and F's, like that's that's important, right? Like for parents who don't have the resources to to provide that, and we have a district with those resources, something that simple, we want it to be there. And then, you know, Manuel and I aren't gonna be around forever. So we want the next generation, a writer, really great, I think, person who thinks about this stuff, Simon Sinek, who wrote this book called The Infinite Game. Education, public education really is the infinite game. And so beyond my time here, beyond Manuel's time, this system will still be in place. And we're hoping that there'll be greater thinkers, greater doers than we are wanting to do this work, coming into this work because of its importance to every generation of, of people that we have. So I'm hoping that, that the younger generation will help. And if not, even if they don't want to be involved directly, become teachers, support the work of teachers, support the work of organizations that really are trying to transform and, and reimagine public education in the way that's going to benefit generations to come. Because while it is an infinite game, there are some immediate needs that can be addressed with some real solutions that will work. We want folks to, who, again, may not directly want to do this work to help support us in our efforts to, to get some of this work done right now, uh, because it is impacting the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of our students and our families. So thank you again for inviting us. Appreciate the time. And I'll turn it over to Manuel. 
ditto. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that one of the things that I'll add to this is just finding out who you are, your your true north is so important because there's going to be difficult times. You're going to run, run into challenges. You're going to have your, your faith tested, your hope tested. And, and so it really is about finding your true north. What is it that, that you would hope to accomplish and why we call the philosophical framework for the work that you're doing? I would encourage people to write that down, revisit that, to come back to it over and over, because again, those are there are going to be some moments. In addition to the book that Lewis mentioned, Infinite Game, which we highly recommend to anybody listening, I'll also recommend another book called A More Beautiful Question, where really is leading about this idea of how do we just ask the right questions. Sometimes it's the fact that we're just not asking the right questions, mm. right? It really helps when you start to see the world in, in that particular way of how do we ask uh, different questions. So with that, uh, as Lewis mentioned, I, I know that I stand on the shoulders of, of not only uh, uh, past work is continue work, but then also the, the work of our past president, you know, he mentioned somebody's going to come along and they're going to do knock it out of the park way more than than we have but the the, the fact is that uh, you know you're pushing along for that that next group of folks to come in and improve and so we hope that that happens as well thank you for the time that you've given us i really appreciate this and Louis mentioned if support your your local educator remember they're the ones that spend 99.9 percent of that time with the students in the classroom they are the experts and let's uh, empower them so we could start to uh, make some really big changes in our system. Uh, no, thank you both so much. It's been like a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PolicyWise. I'm Ellie Arsbecker, and today's episode was hosted by Demi Wack, produced by Jarrett Ramonis and Cody Stobig, and was edited by Rachel Livenall. PolicyWise podcast is a production of Youth Leadership Institute. If you want to find more great youth content, check out wiley.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And big announcement time, this will be the final season of PolicyWise. It has been such a great ride. Thank you to all of our amazing guests and of course, thank you to all of our amazing listeners. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.